welcome you all uh, to this event. Um, the very first show that I made as uh, director of uh, the company was uh, Jimmy's Hall, which tells the story of uh, Jimmy Carlton, uh, a fellow who was deported for his political beliefs from Ireland. Uh, and that story seemed like the perfect story for uh, myself and Neil Murray as new directors of the Abbey to start our tenure with because it's important that we tell all kinds of stories and that if we have the privilege of a platform such as this, we have a real responsibility to tell the stories that really matter <coughs> and not the same story again and again. And so I picked up the uh, the the idea from, um, or we picked up the idea from the Ken Loach movie, uh, Jimmy's Hall. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go and watch it. It's fantastic. You can see it on Netflix. And it uh, turns out that Ken Loach got the idea from Paul Laverty, his screenwriter. And uh, Paul Laverty got the idea from his friend, Donald Kelly. Uh, <laughs> and so. Donald is uh, an actor in the company and, uh, and in the show. Again, if you haven't seen the show, come down. Uh, just uh, this guy dancing is worth the ticket price alone. And really, without Donald, who we refer to as the kind of spirit animal of the show, uh, we none of us, uh, we wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have made that show. Ken wouldn't have made his movie and we wouldn't all be sitting here today. So uh, give it up for Toro. Get over the top, but thanks. On <laughs> uh, uh, Ken Loach and Paul Laverty, I just uh, first of all I'd like to start by yeah, welcoming you all to Jimmy's Hall. And the idea of it is to have an informal gathering to spread information and raise awareness about the subject of the play, which is a wrongful deportation. So just decided it was the perfect platform to um, <coughs> talk about something that we need to talk about, because it's not being talked about enough. Um, and there's a message from Ken Loach, Paul Aberty and Rebecca O'Brien at 16 Films, so I'll read it, it's, it's quite brief. If Jimmy Grantham were alive today, we imagine he would be shouting from the rooftops about the unjust treatment of those coming to Europe and Ireland seeking a safe place of refuge. He would demand that they had a full life and had the right to contribute and work and live in safety without fear of deportation. He would demand that they had a right to fulfil their talent and share it with their new neighbours. He would want to hear them sing, see them dance and listen to their stories. He would want to be enriched by his fellow human beings' experience and enjoy the moment. It seems to us the spirit of Jimmy's Hall is alive and kicking in the Abbey Theatre. We want to express our solidarity with all those at the Jimmy's Hall Today Assembly activists, volunteers, professionals, artists, but most of all, to those in the direct provision centres who are so often refused the right to be all they can be. Good luck to you all.
represented here in the state of the Abbey Theatre. It was built by communal efforts over 80 years ago to offer shelter and cultural sustenance to people on his father's farm at the crossroads of Efrenina in County Leitrim. And in that same field, two years ago, on two throne, Michael D. Higgins had this to say. Jimmy Holton was one of those rare emancipatory figures, as we would see. Togarth cuts Muitanadini from below. From below he worked with a blaze of energy, honest and generosity, that burst upon this locality in very turbulent times at the beginning of the 1920s, and again in the early and may I say dreadful 1930s. We can recall him with sadness, but also with righteous anger, because he was, for authoritarian political purposes, mixed with clerical pressure, illegally deported from his own country for his political beliefs. What happened was an affront to basic civil rights and freedoms, including the freedom of speech, the freedom to organize, and the freedom to hold meetings. Those who not only wanted freedom, independence in a political sense, they wanted freedom from hunger, freedom from insecurity, freedom from abuse, freedom from bigotry, and they wanted it, and this is the greatness of Jimmy Groton, they wanted it for all humanity. They wanted it for all humanity. Um, I was present on the day when President Higgins gave that speech in a deluge down in Effernay, County Leitrim, and I'm very glad that two people who were also present that day are here with us, Sabina Higgins and Paul Grouton. sometimes of saying the truth in Ireland and elsewhere often as well. Sometimes it's very difficult to say what is going on or what has happened. But uh, one person who's, who's done amazing work in, um, in uncovering stuff that would otherwise uh, not, not be known about is Vukashin Nedelskovich and He's here today somewhere. I can't see him right now. There he is. Bukashim, would you like to come up and explain about your photographic exhibition, uh, Asylum Archive? <laughs> you can use a mic if you like. Thanks, Donald. Hello everyone. These photographs that you can see here today on the screen just behind me are part of the project Asylum Archive, an archive of asylum and direct provision in Ireland. I started 11 years ago when I was in direct provision. It was very much part of my daily coping mechanism. When I got my permission to stay, I continued to be documenting direct provision centers. 
I visited all of the locations, almost 160 of them, often in deeply isolated sites where direct provision ever existed and still exists in the Irish state. So that we have a record, an archive, of one relatively recent period in recent Irish history, having in mind that we have very little visual information about previous Irish carceral sites, including modern laundries, industrial schools, mother and baby homes, romantic asylums. This is Scotch. She's Hi. nine years of age. She was born while I was living in direct provision. Although I was never issued a deportation order, the fear of being separated from my only child used to break my heart. I lived separately from Coach for the first year of her life. Coach often asked while looking at the family photographs from the time, Dad, why did you look so worried and anxious? I tried to explain. I think she understands it now. I survived direct provision, but the marks of the psychological pain are still present in my body, in my mind. Our children are growing and watching this entirely brutal and inhumane system of direct provision. They're watching the appalling way we are treating people who came to Ireland to seek protection. If we don't make it in our lifetime to completely close, dismantle, and abolish direct provision, then our children will have to do so. In the meantime, how many people have to die within the system? How many people have to be deported and family violently separated? And direct provision. And direct provision. Stop all deportations. Stop all deportations. Right to work. Right to work. General Manager of the Abbey Theatre here, Ronan Wilmot. <laughs> here's uh, Lucky Cambuli, is the director of Mazai, the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland, and he's going to speak about the reality of uh, that of people's lives living in direct provision. So, there's the one. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Are we okay? Yeah. All right. Firstly, let me just thank uh, Donald and uh, the, the old crew for giving us the opportunity uh, to be here today. And also to thank you all for showing the interest in this subject that is very close to our hearts, that is of deportations. And uh, I'm just going to try and enlighten you in a, in a way what it means to have a deportation while you're living in direct provision. Uh, it's very, very important that we find it in our space to challenge the state on the deportations. Because the way that they look into deportations, they, 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 they tell you that it's failed asylum seekers. Failed <laughs> asylum seekers. Then, when you look at it from that point of view, we cease to be human beings 
just because of the failures of the system, which is the system that fails us anyway. There's a lot of cost that is involved with deportations. In the last two years, they have spent 1.3 million euros on deporting the people. From 2016 to 2017, about 500 plus people have been deported, physically removed. But there are deportations that are not uh, really, really mentioned that those people that are refused even to lend. The introduction of the International Protection Act of 2015 meant that it was easy for people just to be refused to lend. A year, last year alone, 4,000 people here were refused just to lend. <coughs> It's the system, it's the attitude of the government who, in the eyes of everybody, claims to be welcoming. Welcoming, we, we're here now talking about a number of people that will be taken from Italy. Welcoming people, but at, once, at some stage of the people's life being here, slowly and quietly before anyone knowing people are removed from the state. The greatest fear of a person that lives in direct provision is the day that a person receives a deportation order. Your life on that particular day changes completely. You are never the same. You live in fear. You don't know when this is going to happen, and what's going to happen to you? You are living, it's like, if I can paint this picture, it's like you are, you, 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 you are standing on the chair in the gallows with the rope around your neck. You're just waiting for that person to kick that chair for you to go, and you don't know when is he going to do that. That's what deportation means to people. When people go to the JNIB office to sign, before they leave home, they don't know whether they will be coming back home or not. Think about that feeling. Must I pack? Must I prepare? What must I do? You go to the JNIB office. That time, that moment that you are sitting there, you have sown your paper. You are waiting for the results or for, that, or for, for the paper to come back, whether you stay or not, or come back the other time. Because it happens that you, you might not even come back. So that waiting is, is, is the most painful time. When we go and, and, and support people who are signing, you can see a person shivering and sitting on the chair. It makes a hell of a difference when somebody goes with someone to support, just to support morally, that there is somebody that is there. Should anything happen, there's quick response that can be done in terms of phoning a solicitor and uh, make, try and save 
I must say as well that in our experience in trying to saving deportations, we have had a lot, uh, a, a very, very few, very few, I must say, solicitors who take deportations very, very seriously. The worst thing is for you to, to get a response from the solicitor that says, there's nothing I can do. Can you imagine? You, depending on that solicitor, and the person says, there's nothing I can do. Person reaches to us. We, 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 we are just group of asylum seekers, movement of asylum seekers in Ireland. We don't have resources, but a person at the middle of the night doesn't know what to do, phones us, and we have to reach out to solicitors to try and help. And fortunately, we do have very, very few that do take it seriously and take their time. Even if there isn't any money to be paid, they do take that, and they have saved a lot of, of, of deportations. In the past three, three weeks, do you know that there are 36 deportations that have been effectively processed and removed from the state here? Past three weeks alone. There has been a big panic, uh, a panic at that stage throughout the centers. And we need to shout to the people, this is what you do. Try and, and, and you know, disappear for, for some time. But they've managed to, to remove some of them, and they leave children, they leave, they separate parents, they take, if they take the father, the mother is left with the parents, with the children. So it, 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 it destroys families. One, two examples I just want to close with. About five or six years ago, there was a deportation that was effected from a, 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 a gentleman called Ali. He was deported to Tanzania, right? Three days after his deportation, he was found dead in his country. And nobody speaks about those. A lady who was an of, uh, Nigerian national just was discharged from, from, from an operation in, in hospital, was forcefully removed, and they took her half naked, scars still bleeding, and they didn't care about that. It's how inhumane deportations are. You can't do it any other way. Right? It's all about, it's, it's good that we, we, we talk about these things. Groups, people, uh, uh, individuals, organizations that claim to support refugees, asylum seekers, uh, undocumented, need to put a, a, a practice into the support and it must not end when they benefit from the people. It must continue even if, uh, if it's unpopular and try and support. Vicky is about to be deported from, uh, from here, Pakistaniness. We have to all be behind that to say right to the, to the minister, right to the Tishok, stop that man from being deported. 
He has done nothing. You are here as an asylum seeker. If you are an asylum seeker, you have done nothing wrong. You are here legal. You need protection. It's the system that fails you up to a time that you are deported. So let's stop deportations. In doing that, we'll end the direct provision. In doing that, we'll stop these deaths that are happening in direct provision lately. A nine-year-old boy two months ago passed away. Her mother has been, has been signing for six years. He's been here for nine years. That boy was born in direct provision. So those are the things that briefly I can share with you about deportations and why it is important that you get yourself involved, you go to your group, you go to your constituent, constituency to say deportations must be stopped. Let's stop deportation and direct provision and right to work for everybody. Thank you. Um, we've got some help from um, Ken McHugh here of um, Sports Against Racism in Ireland and uh, he's got a, a few uh, little clipboards with sheets of paper and if you would like to volunteer to just the start up of, an, of the idea of, that Irish citizens could accompany people when they're called in to the Garda National Immigration Bureau or the or Inish, the Irish Naturalisation and Immigration Service, um, to accompany them through those, those nerve-wracking moments to bear witness. To, that would be, I think, a good little seed to plant outside the, in the little garden outside Jimmy's Hall today. So, uh, Ken, if you wouldn't mind trying to figure out a way to pass them around over the next hour, and then maybe we'll have them available in the foyer afterwards, if anybody would like to uh, volunteer for that, that kind of activity. Um, now, I'd like to uh, introduce one of, uh, to bring us back, really, to the world of Jimmy Gralton's Hall back in the 1930s. Uh, we have uh, Brigitte Necton, one of Ireland's greatest performers, who plays the part of Alice Gralton, Jimmy Gralton's mother. And in real life, Alice Gralton had to appeal to Leitrim County Council to call for the uh, to call for the revoking of the deportation order against her son Jimmy. So here's Brigitte. Is that his crime? 
If we can take a man from his home without a trial and send him off because of what's in his head, I may lose my child, but Ireland loses much, much more. Well now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Anne Mulhall here of, um, from UCD's Department of English and from Anti-Racism Network Ireland. And Anne's going to talk about the International Protection Office. Thanks, Donal, and thanks to the Abbey for organising this here today. It's a really important event, um, and it's really vital that we, I suppose, really galvanise people to resist the deportation regime in this country. Um, I'm aware that there's a lot of people here who have a lot more expertise on the International Protection Act and Office than I do, uh, people who have had to live uh, under that legislation and, and with under that regime, which is something that uh, I will never have to do. But um, I think it's important that people understand how the deportation regime operates in this country. Uh, I think we can all look to what's happened on the US-Mexico border, or we look to what's happening in the Mediterranean. We see detention camps sort of proliferating across Europe and feel horror and express horror at that regime. But the Irish deportation regime is part of that same system and part of that same machinery. It's just that, like Lucky was saying, it happens much more quietly here. <clears throat> And it happens through uh, things like putting through new legislation, such as the International Protection Act, that uh, has made an already inhuman system yet more brutal, really. So the International Protection Act was introduced uh, in 2015 and made legislation in 2016. <clears throat> and, um, just as borders kill, legislation is, if you like, that is the, it's the, it's, it's the juridical aspect of that kind of border killing is really what it is. Um, so we call for an end to direct provision, but calling for an end to direct provision without calling for an end to deportation is pointless. Because the point of direct provision is to keep people in a position where they do not mix with others, where they're segregated from, uh, from, from mainstream society and where they're easily sort of made uh, vulnerable to the deportation regime. So if we're calling for the end of direct revision, we have to also call for the end of deportation. But there's some reasons why the International Protection Act can be seen as part of this, uh, really the closing of the borders across Europe and, North, uh, and, and the US. Um, so first of all, the International Protection Act introduced what was called the Single Application Procedure. Now this all sounds very technical, I know, but it's important to try to grasp what this actually means in effect. So the Single Application, application Procedure was supposed to be a more efficient means of processing people's applications, and it meant that everything was considered under one application. So people, uh, their, their application for refugee status, 
for subsidiary protection and also then for permission to remain were all to be processed in the one time and the government said it'll be all be done within six months and then they said it will be done within nine months and now this efficient single application procedure the waiting time for the first interview is 20 months i think isn't that right so it's not even doing the efficient job that it was supposed to do but what's meant by efficiency? Well, as Frances Fitzgerald made very clear in her statements about this when she introduced the legislation, efficiency is largely about creating a system whereby people can be more easily and more quickly deported and deported in more numbers. So she said quite kind of proudly that yes, this legislation was intended to increase the number of people who would be deported and to increase the rate of deportation. One way in which it does this is by the changes that it's introduced to the system of leave to remain. So most people prior to 2016 who stayed, got papers to remain in this country, people who applied for international protection here, got their leave to remain, uh, got it on, on the grounds of leave to remain, okay, rather than refugee status or um, subsidiary protection. Now what that means is that once all of these other kind of procedures were finished. People could, were invited by the minister to submit documentation or evidence that they were, that they should be granted humanitarian leave to remain. And that you know, ranges from things like references, from volunteering, from having had children in the state, having children in school, having been in education yourself, all sorts of different reasons why people would apply for leave to remain. Now that process has been completely gotten rid of. So what happens is that people's permission to remain is considered as part of their broader application. Once people's application is refused, they're given five days to submit any materials that might contribute to a consideration by the minister of their permission to remain. Now, five days, I am told by solicitors that we work with, is not even enough time to get an appointment with your solicitor. So essentially, the mechanism it uh, means that there are vaster numbers of people being deported just through changing that aspect of the legislation. Okay, so that has been a huge effect of this supposedly efficient single application procedure and it's something that Charlie Flanagan is also quite proud of. So he proudly announced last year that the numbers of people being granted leave to remain had reduced from about 600 in the previous year to 100 last year. And that this was a sign that the, 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 the procedures introduced by the new legislation were working. Okay, so you, what, you, what you need to understand, I suppose, what we all really need to grasp is that this system that is in place in Ireland, as elsewhere, is not about uh, humanitarian, uh, it's, it's not a humanitarian impulse. What this is about is about securitization. Okay, it's about securing the borders, as Francis Fitzgerald talked about at the time that the legislation was passed. Um, another aspect of the International Protection Act uh, was the way that it was introduced. So it was basically in January 2016, a 62-page form was sent to all people, most people who had already got applications ongoing in the system in Ireland. And they had to reapply for international protection. So people who were in the system, thousands of people, had to reapply. It's a 62-page form. 
uh, lawyers, the few lawyers who deal with these issues in Ireland and all of the, uh, including with the NGOs, including with FLAC, were completely inundated. So people had actually no legal advice. It wasn't possible to get legal advice. The whole system collapsed, basically. And yet people were being told on the form that they had 20 working days within which to return this form. People were returning forms without legal advice. They've been unable to view their previous application or retrieve any of their documentation. So any discrepancies between their first application and this new application that they had to make would be grounds to refuse them uh, protection in the country. So we still don't know. We don't know what's happened to people that, that, that fell into, into that trap. We don't know what's happened to people. These might be some of the people who, who are being deported now or have been issued with deportation orders. Okay, so it's just this kind of Kafkaesque really system. In addition to that, the forms were provided in different languages and many people were saying that the forms that they were given to fill out were actually indecipherable. Like, do you know what I mean? That they read like they had been actually translated on Google Translate. So it was just like, there's just multiple issues here and all of these add up to this, uh, you could say there's incompetence, but it's a kind of deliberate incompetence in many ways. There's certainly an unfeeling, inhumane incompetence that has the desired result from the point of view of the Department of Justice of allowing as few people as possible to actually claim and uh, sort of vindicate their international right to seek protection in this country. Um, I don't know how I'm doing for time there, Dunville. Okay, so I, let me just... Um, no, but there's so many different aspects, to be honest, that uh, I guess, uh, you know, Lucky re re referred to the refusals at the border, and these have actually massively increased over the last 10 years exponentially. But what we're finding as well is that people who are being refused at the border, well now the refuse the, the whole immigration system at Dublin airports and other ports of entry has been taken over by the INS. Okay, so it's immigration officers who perform, who decide at the border whether or not somebody is going to be allowed to actually make an asylum claim or be allowed uh, leave to enter the country. Um, so as INS individual officers are making decisions on whether or not people are, for instance, um, that they can, they can decide on a whim without really giving any reason that somebody is a threat to the state or that uh, giving this person leave to land is inimical to social policy in the state. They don't actually need to give any reasons and there's no transparency around these decisions. This led to things like uh, last year, or 2016, I think 248 people from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya were refused leave to land at the border, okay? They were refused leave to land. So were deported back to where they came from or back to whatever their putative first country of landing in Europe was. 57 of those went on to appeal that from detention. So these people would be detained and then deported. 57 appealed and were, were allowed to, to remain in the country and the rest were deported. So even from, people are being returned to countries that are actually demonstrably unsafe uh, return to situations of persecution and possible death. Uh, and, and that's just really kind of a daily occurrence. Um, there was something that the solicitor Wendy Lyon asked me to say in particular, uh, and that was that there's been an increase in deportations, it seems, this August. And this just gives you an, an insight into the inhumanity of the system. Uh, Wendy was telling us that 
There's always an increase of deportations in August because it's when solicitors, more, most solicitors take their holidays. So people don't have any recourse to get legal advice. So, so during that month, deportation orders affected. The effecting of deportation orders increases because people can't get hold of their lawyers, you know? And so that tells us a lot about this whole system. So, I mean, I just have to echo again what Lucky and Fukushima were saying, and that is that we have to say no to borders. We have to say no to deportations. We have to find a way to resist this system. And for those of us who have the privileges of citizenship uh, and EU citizenship, we have to find a way to stand in greater solidarity with our neighbours and friends and, 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 and comrades who are uh, subject to this violent system. Thank you. Two-page questionnaire went around. I was, I got to know a lot of people in Globe House in Sligo, with the, the Direct Provision Centre in Sligo, and the wave of panic that swept through that building. And there are almost 300 people housed there, mostly three and four to a room. It was palpable. The uh, we ran a little um, culture. Sorry, are you ready already? Oh wow! I thought it was going to take. I was just bl blathering <laughs> to cover for you. It, I'll finish by saying it was actually shocking to see the panic and the wave of depression that swept through that building when people realised they couldn't get access to the solicitor and the deadline was a 20-day deadline that they felt they, they, were, they were in fear of breaching. And lots of people filled out their, their and completed and returned the form without getting legal advice. And they're the people who now are being served with deportation orders. Ruben.
it was just waves of, of boats of people coming and I'm sure like like everyone here you feel completely powerless to, to, to do anything about it. Um, Fergus O'Clord asked me uh, to commission me to make a piece as part of the 2016 commemorations on Banna Beach to commemorate um, Sir Roger Casement. Um, and the event was going to be set on a beach, um, so in light of that, I, I felt that it would be a missed opportunity not to say something about what was going on. Um, I've been in a migrant myself. I emigrated to the States back in um, the 90s, and uh, unlike a lot of people that come to Ireland, I had the language, um, I had skills. I, I, I even had a job in Ireland that I quit to leave. I just went to, to have a better life, um, and I was afforded to do that like millions and millions of Irish over the years. Um, and it, you know, to come back and see your country not offer that opportunity to people who are coming from um, really, really tough situations, it, it's very hard to swallow. Um, being a, being a, it, was, it was difficult for me when I, when I immigrated, so I can only imagine what it is to come to Ireland and not have the language and to end up in a detention centre um, where you're marginalised. Many of them, they're on the fringes of our towns where um, uh, you, you mightn't even have access to a bus to, 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 to get into town. So it's quite difficult, it would make it quite difficult for people to integrate. So I decided I, I wanted to, through dance, to, to bring people together and not just to work with asylum seekers and refugees, but have it open to both Irish people, local Irish people, and those coming from abroad to kind of perform, to, to offer a platform for people to come together. So we created a piece called Welcoming a Stranger, um, and it was a mix of Irish dance, African dance, Palestinian dabke, um, contemporary dance, singing, great musicians. Um, which we premiered in 2016, and we got invited to Palestine from the front with the piece. Um, after Palestine, I think many of us came back um, with a real sense of paralysis about what to do about over there. So um, we felt well, we could, we can have impact here, and the group wanted to keep they wanted to keep dancing. So um, we created a second piece last year called "It Takes a Village," um, which you'll see uh, an excerpt from today. Um, when we finished that piece, um, because there were asylum seekers that kept sound, you know, we, we kept the pieces positive. It was about integration. It was about a way to come together. You know, I didn't want to drag through the, the hardships of direct provision in, in any of the pieces because I think everybody needed a bit of respite and a bit of uh, a break from that and, and come to a place where there was a bit of joy in the dancing. Um, but I also felt there was a need to say something about that. So um, this year with Donald and a few of us, we created a show called State of Exception, which, which, which I set up my professional company, which really looks at the effects of direct provision on the, on the body. Um, and it's a very, very tough... Uh, tough thing to deal with. Um, we took the piece uh, to Mona Constantine, who's in the audience here. Took, we took it to Welcome Stranger to Longford this year, where we met Vicky, who um, is being deported today. Um, Mona, I can't, I can't praise her enough. Um, both Mona, the Abbey, Sheem Satira, um, theatres are getting involved and are giving platforms um, for, for, for um, voicing the voices. So, so I, I really think the arts are having a, a major role in this. Um, and Mona has worked tirelessly for all of the, the asylum seekers in, in Longford that have been engaged in the project, so I really would ask a big hand to go to her. Um, so, um, Vicky will be deported this evening, um, much to um, all our, our um, utter dismay. Um, in the piece, there is some singing. Um, the lead singer isn't here. Um, she. She has had a deportation order issued as well, and she's now gone underground, so we, we have no idea where she is and how to access her. So, um, and I think two other members of the cast have deportation orders issued against them. The case with Vicky, um, if, if he doesn't go tonight, um, 
he um, he, can, he can be imprisoned in his own com uh, country if, if he the way Pakistan works is that if you're forcibly put on a plane in Ireland and sent home, um, you can then be imprisoned on the other side. So tonight he'll get on a plane and go home to avoid avoid um, avoid being imprisoned in his own, co own country. So. Um, I think what we've all learned, you know, from working with these incredible people, they're amazing humans. They're just amazing humans. And I think all of us that have been engaged in the project have learned so much um, from them, especially about joy. Um, there's so much that we can learn from people coming to our countries about, about they're so on their bodies, you know. Um, they, they bring a lot of joy to the rehearsal room and uh, I think they make our lives better. And I think by not allowing people to stay and, and forcibly deporting out of the country, we're missing out massively, really massively. So um, we'll do an excerpt today. Um, Kim, one of this, has is going to step in for, for the singer, so please support her. It's, it's probably the first time she's ever sang in public and she, she'll do a terrific job. Um, so I guess, lads, uh, we, we have... Just while the um, dancers and musicians are getting into position, uh, a couple of weeks ago I had the honour to, um, to, to call up to Longford and pick up uh, Vicky Cockhart and bring him down to watch Jimmy's Hall. And on the way down he was very tentative, and as you would be, and worried and stressed and over the... Uh, trying to deal with the deportation order. And he came and he watched Jimmy's home. And on the way back, he was uh, singing songs, uh, which made me feel like, I think he felt like he had some hope. Um, and I have very mixed emotions about remembering that now. Sit to my stomach, 
Is that okay? I will indeed. Um, I think it just feels like the right thing to do, seeing as we're in Jimmy's Hall, that we have the kind of conversation that would have happened in Efferna in 1932, except we have people from further afield than Leitrim. But um, it, this is the part of Jimmy's Hall today where we're just going to have, have, a, have a chat. And I'm just going to leave this down now. And who would like to pick up the mic? I think it would be good to start with somebody sitting in the hall at the moment. Uh, feel free to please speak. Very important to say that the song was uh, written by Jade. <laughs> such an amazing, assertive and energy-giving uh, performance. Thank you everyone for making it here today for me and for my second family over here on the stage. I really appreciate it. I know though it is very difficult to take out a time for your own family members and but you took out a time for a stranger over here. I really appreciate that. I want to say thank you to Arlen. And uh, thank you to all these lovely people over here in support of me, from whom I have learned on every step in these past three years living in a direct provision. Especially my inspiration my motivation and uh, everything you can say at the moment are two people sitting down over here in this theater. One is on the stage, Catherine Young, and the second is there in the audience, Mona. Well, there, while there are so many people came on the stage and they were saying something and I was sitting behind over there and I was just listening and uh, my choreographer she mentioned about one of the girls she's been underground I had that in my mind as well and uh, so many people gave me advice to do that as well just to secure my life and myself but today I will say one thing I have learned from Ireland to face the, face the challenges. So I will never, never put my feet down. What I have learned from my family, I will do that. And I will put my step forward and let's see what happened. What happened when I get back home? It's better. Rather than getting underground, I'm not going to die over there. No problem. As long my family, both back home and my family in Ireland, as they are proud. And once again, I would like to say thank you to Ireland. Thank you very much.
just had the mic. Too long. Mona Considine, Artistic Director of the Backstage Theatre Longford. Um, sorry, I hadn't intended on speaking, but I suppose if uh, Vicky is brave enough to speak, then I suppose I should say a few words. I want to start by saying that uh, Catherine mentioned what I've done, but I count myself very lucky to have met Catherine and worked with Catherine. She opened my eyes to the situation of direct provision. I had no knowledge or very little knowledge of it before uh, before I started working with Catherine, and I really, really want to thank Catherine for opening my eyes and everyone else's eyes to, to this situation. Um, when we first started working with Catherine on Welcoming the Stranger, um, I suppose one thing that strikes me about it is that it was funded by the Department of Justice um, <laughs> under the Integration Fund. Um, I think it's, 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 just, it's just such a contradiction, you know, that they would fund this and that they would, they would fund us to, to integrate. And uh, really what they didn't expect us to do was to actually truly integrate. I think, you know, they just expected a box-ticking exercise, but that's not what we do in the arts. That's not what we do in this, in this world. Uh, um, we didn't, we, we truly integrated these people that we became fortunate enough to, to meet and work with in the Direct Provision Centre, Vicky and Amir and uh, Abdul and AJ and uh, Amity, uh, particularly who performed in Welcoming the Stranger in December. And um, they have become part of our community. Uh, they've become our friends. And to think that you would fund somebody to, to integrate and then expect you to turn your back on them is beyond belief. And I don't think we can do it. I, I, I booked Vicky's flight home and I never had such an overwhelming feeling of letting somebody down doing that. Um, I just, I don't, there are no words really. Um, but he didn't want to be deported. He wanted to go back voluntarily. But I just want to say one thing finally, we will not stop fighting to get Vicky back. Deportation. 
Jimmy was never bitter or angry, and neither were my grandparents about what happened to him. And it's hard to explain that because as political people, they were angry about things that were going on, but they never held any grudges against their neighbours or others who'd been involved in the deportation. As a child, I didn't understand that. Um, as an adult, I think I do. Uh, the pressures that people are under to conform, to be a good citizen, to do a job, are immense on all of us. Um, a lot of people will probably not know that people were looking to shoot Jimmy in the 20s when he left Ireland. He met one of those young men um, who was hiding in a tree one night, awaiting him, and they had shared a conversation. And that man had a road to Damascus experience um, and converted away from that type of behaviour and actually became a lifelong trade union leader um, and a humanitarian. There are lots of things that I think we admire about Jimmy as a family, but the deepest thing, uh, people have referred to politics, politics here today, and it is important. Politics is about being here, and Jimmy was about politics. You cannot separate the, the, the politics from the man. But the deepest thing that impresses me was his humanitarian nature, that he had a great faith in people that we could do things. Jimmy had a way of asking people questions, um, and questions are important. He, I think, felt that it was important that we think about things. And if we think about things, sometimes the solutions that we accept fall away as being meaningless and bad. Um, when his neighbours said, um, we need a place to go, the place that we had was burned down by agents of the state at that time, you have to remember, the black and tans. Um, he said, well, what can we do? We can build a hall. We will build a hall. And they built the hall. Meanwhile, there were other people, both in the 20s and the 30s, the state saying, we need to control this. How can we control this? The church saying, we need to control this. We will control this. Um, I think sometimes when we look at the state and the solutions that it seeks, as children we believe that the state is a rational being, that it thinks things through and that it comes to rational decisions. However, I think in looking at Jimmy's case and in the stories we've heard here today, what we see is the state does not always act rationally, it does not always act in a just manner, and it does not always do the right thing. I've had to read parts of the Ryan Report which have indeed made me cry. I think I might later read a report about direct provision, and that will also make me cry. Those are wrong things, so they have to stop. Then, I want to kind of end with um, something which I think is quite important in terms of what the hall was. In North European tradition, um, in winter, we light candles and we place them in our windows. They're not there to welcome the baby Jesus. They are there to, to, as a sign for all who are lost, as a symbol of direction, to come here, to come in. There will be warmth and succour here. I think we forgot that at times, and it is, to, uh, is a bad thing that we have. In the Dark Ages, Ireland as a nation held up a small candle that lit the Renaissance. Holding up a candle is important. Humanity has had many dark times, both locally and nationally. In the 20s and 30s, Jimmy lit a candle and placed that light in the window of the hall, and people came. They came from Drumsnar, they came from Mung, and they came from as far as Longford. Jimmy lit a light in the minds of the people he met, 
and some said, put out that light. We should revel in that light. As a people, we know the bitter um, experiences of immigration, and we know the effects that it had both on those who leave and those left behind. In a world that is beset by many issues and challenges, there are many who are faced with the dark decisions of whether or not to immigrate. For us as a people and for us as a nation, is it not right, is it not just that we continue to hold that candlelight, that we stand with those other countries that hold that candle? Thank you. the founder of Dublin's Focus Theatre. She taught me practically everything I know uh, about theatre and gave in my life. And another co-founder of the Focus Theatre is here with us, Sabina Higgins. Um, and Sabina's going to read um, uh, an extract from uh, a novel, Edna O'Brien's last novel, The Little Red Chairs. And the little red chairs refers to 651 little red chairs that were placed on the street in Sarajevo in 2012 in memory of the 651 children who were killed by snipers during the siege of Sarajevo. Um, they, it, I think it's not only arguable, it's, it's, it's truthful to say that Edna O'Brien is in a way a refugee herself. Uh, the kind of woman she was could not exist in Ireland and was driven out and her books were burned uh, in the same way that Grafton's Hall was burned. So I think it's very appropriate that somebody like Sabina Higgins coming from Dublin's Focus Theatre should um, read an excerpt from Edna O'Brien's The Little Red Chairs. get together to mount a performance of Midsummer's Night's Dream. And that performance turns into an evocation of what the word home means. So this is Edna's now, the, the last paragraph in her novel. For the finale, the word home was to be sung and chanted in the 35 different languages of the performers. At first, even after many rehearsals, it was awry. The voices graces, the very harmony they had aspired to was missing. And then one woman stepped forward and took command. Her voice, rich and supple, a wine dark sea filled with the drowned memories of love and belonging. Soon others followed, and at last, 35 tongues as one joined in a soaring, transcendent magnificence. Home, home, home. 
It rose and swelled. It reached to the rafters and through the walls, out into the lit street, through countryside with its marsh and meadow, by graveyard and sheepfold, through dumbstruck forests, to the lonely savannas and reeking slums, overseas and beyond, to endless, longed-for destinations. You would not believe how many words there are for home and what savage music there can be run from it. right back to the, the dark focus theatre where candles where many a candle was lit. Um, there, we're at the finale stage of, of the event, folks, and um, in, uh, in Jimmy's Hall, there's a little kind of, the, we have a pre-show session beforehand, and as part of it, we, um, you, we sing, we sing, Sarah Madigan sings, uh, uh, I want to dance with somebody. And um, we thought it would be particularly appropriate to sing that as, if you like, a finale today because uh, three weeks ago in Galway, Trek Provision Centre, a trans woman called Silva died. And one of her friends posted that um, she was a, a great. Whitney Houston fan. So it seems appropriate, if you like, to dance, grin, and laugh through the pain and the loss with, I want to dance with somebody. So I think it'd be great, by the way, feel free. <laughs> Pardon? Uh, well, let's figure it out. How is there? Well, this feels like my family arrived. <laughs> 